Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Explicit content is found in this episode. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to the True Crime Fan Club Podcast. I'm your host, Lainey. When I was younger, our car died on the side of a major highway late at night. The scene was straight out of a movie. My mom's boyfriend at the time went to a nearby gas station to either get some gas or use a payphone. I can't remember. I remember that I was asleep in the back seat with my two brothers. I woke up to some noise and groggily sat up and looked towards my mom. She was in the passenger side seat and a man was at the window. She reluctantly rolled the window down and he demanded all of the jewelry that she was wearing. I can't remember if a gun was involved or not, but to me it seems likely. We walked away that night with our lives and my mom later found the jewelry at a pawn shop. To this day, before I make any trip, I make sure my car is in good working order and that I have a full tank of gas. I never get below half a tank ever. I just want to have to avoid needing help on the side of the road. I don't want a random stranger coming up to help me because they may have nefarious intentions. We were lucky that night, but victims of the later dubbed Roadside Strangler were not. Okay, on to the show. Daniel and Patricia Ross welcomed Michael Bruce Ross into this world on July 26, 1959, in Brooklyn, Connecticut. The teenage newlyweds tied the knot in February of that same year, likely feeling the pressure from their families to not have a child out of wedlock. Patricia, for her part, mostly wanted to avoid having to go to a home for unwed mothers. Now she was an honest woman in the eyes of those who silently judged her ever-growing bump. Daniel Ross was a dairy and chicken farmer. He knew that his new wife was a reluctant bride. Patricia often complained of having to work around the farm and reminded Daniel constantly that she did not want to be with him. Over the next five years, they would welcome three additional children, giving Michael two sisters and one brother to look after. The Ross home was very volatile and unpredictable. Daniel was too busy and too tired managing the farm Terrain and Patricia. Patricia regularly beat and humiliated her children, mostly focusing her attention on Michael. She would belittle him, scream into his face, and beat him with a broom or a mop handle. She often told Michael that he ruined her life by being born, and that she had to give up all of her dreams when she married his father. Michael internalized his mother's words and began to believe he was to blame for his mother's unhappiness. Patricia dealt with her lot in life by seeking attention from her ex-boyfriends. She carried on affairs under Daniel's nose, who, again, had no time to monitor his wife's every move. It wasn't until mid-1964 when Patricia failed to return home. Daniel called around searching for his wife. A friend finally revealed that Patricia had run off with her boyfriend. Daniel called her father and told him what his daughter was up to. The following day, Patricia's father returned her back to her marital home. She revealed to Dan that she is pregnant with her lover's child. She would later have an abortion to avoid having to care for yet another child. She continued beating the children on a regular basis and humiliated them by creating opportunities for herself to embarrass them in front of friends and family members. Dan had finally had enough of this unwarranted behavior. Dan brings her to the state hospital where she is admitted 
involuntarily for observation. During her time there, doctors diagnosed her with a personality trait disturbance, released just a month later in November of 1964, and given a recommendation to seek marriage counseling, since she often shared with doctors how much she hated Dan. She returns home, and things in the Ross household calm down for a little while. Over the course of the next two years, she would revert to her old ways and return to abusing the children. Enlisted by his father to watch over his younger siblings, Michael often inserted himself in between his mother and siblings. She reminded him again and again that he was a mistake, a crybaby who pissed the bed and a sissy boy. He believed her, but there was a silent anger he held in. In 1967, Patricia again runs away from home with a new boyfriend. Dan finds her in town and drags her back home, literally kicking and screaming. He again took her to the state psychiatric hospital and she's given the same diagnosis and remedy as before. None of the intervention Dan attempted worked on his volatile wife. She became pregnant by a lover and had her second abortion in 1967. Her brother, Ned, eight years older than Michael, moved in to help with his sister and the farm when Michael was four years old. Michael and Ned became extremely close over the years that followed. Dan assigned Michael the task of raising the chickens and assigned Ned the task of killing them when the time came or if they were ill. Michael would later confess that Ned began molesting him soon after moving in with the family. Dan encouraged Ned to teach Michael how to kill the sickly chickens, which devastated Michael. He had raised them and had grown to love them. When Ned taught him how to kill them, it was then he learned to disassociate from what he deemed to be murder. He was working 70-hour weeks on the farm and was exhausted, dealing with his mentally ill mother on top of being surprised during the nights by his uncle Ned was beginning to wear on him. Molestation is kept hush-hush during this time, so Michael had no outlet for his pent-up frustration or heightened anxiety. The symptoms manifested as bedwetting. Every night, Michael woke up before the household to wash his sheets and hung them out to dry. His mother reveled in this and would use his bedwetting to embarrass him. In a matter of months, he would be witness to yet another trauma. After returning home from school, his mother bluntly told him that his uncle Ned had hung himself in the barn because he was a homosexual. Instead of comforting her son, she asked if he was one of them too, because they were so close. Dan intervened and told her to leave the boy be. She smirked and told him to get out of the house and go to work. Michael claims to have disassociated during this time in his childhood and recalled very little of the abuse inflicted on him by his mother and Ned. Psychologists who interviewed Michael believe that this is when Michael's antisocial personality disorder began to manifest. He was 12 years old when he began stalking his classmates. When he found himself ready to strike, he would drag the girls into an alleyway or behind a building to undress and fondle them. He had no extracurricular activities to help with his socialization skills. He was prescribed Ritalin during this time to help him calm down during class. His teachers noted that he was impulsive and hyper, which impacted his ability to learn and retain information during class. As he entered puberty, he became obsessed with masturbating. By the time he entered the seventh grade, Michael was masturbating several times a day. Once, his mother caught him in the act and shamed him for pleasing himself. She then attempted to catch him in the act by bursting into his room or in the bathroom at random times. She was a menace to her own son and was hyper-focused on humiliating him. Michael didn't have any close friends. If he had, he wouldn't have been permitted to see them or have them over. Dan instilled in Michael that farm work came first. The only extracurricular activity he would allow his son to participate in was the Future Farmers of America. Michael had a recorded IQ of 122, which means he is above average in intelligence. Despite the long hours on the farm, there was nothing that Michael loved more than working side by side with his father. His father half expected Michael to remain on the farm after his graduation from Killingly High School in 1977. Michael surprised everyone when he announced that he applied and would attend Cornell University 
in Ithaca, New York. His mother, upon hearing the news that Michael intended to move out of the family home to attend college, tried to punish him for abandoning the family. His mother made a huge show of taking his mattress from his bedroom, dragging it through the house and lighting it on fire. By the time he graduated from high school, Michael had weaned himself off of his Ritalin, which was a poor choice as it helped him control his impulses. When he arrived at Cornell in the fall of 1977, he declared a major in agricultural economics. He was relieved to be away from his vile mother, but dearly missed his father. He was looking forward to the new routine he had to manage as a college freshman. He continued to masturbate habitually and eventually began to realize his fantasies. He could no longer get off to pornographic magazines. Instead, he focused on violent sexual fantasies. He imagined a beautiful co-ed he would force to be a sex slave who he could have total domination over. He would say later that he made domination and control his focus because of his relationship with his mother. He became slightly more social as the year progressed. When he entered his sophomore year, he began a relationship with a young woman who we will name Corinne. A quick listener note. The women who dated Michael during his college years prefer to remain anonymous. This show will honor their wishes and give them pseudonyms. Corinne was in the Reserve Officers Training, or ROTC as it is better known. He admired her ambition and her strong will, but often dominated over her in the bedroom. He lost his virginity to her soon after they began dating, and he had copious amounts of sex to satisfy the urges he could not seem to control. When she became pregnant later that year, they agreed that she should have an abortion. Michael knew he wanted to marry her, but they weren't quite ready for a child. Despite agreeing to the abortion, Michael wanted to be her source of support, but Corinne went home over Christmas break and had the abortion alone. When she returned in the spring of 1979, she informed him of what she had done. Michael felt as if he had failed her by not being present. He admired what his father did when he got his mother pregnant. He wished that he could have stepped up in the same way. When she revealed that she had committed herself to the military, Michael was heartbroken. Their relationship never recovered and they broke things off during the start of their junior year. His second college girlfriend, who we will call Darby, was a freshman at Cornell when she began dating Michael. The young woman was a victim of campus sexual assault and was forced to perform oral sex on her attacker. When she met Michael, she was hesitant to begin a relationship with him, but ultimately felt that being with him would mean she was safe. Michael soon found the two an apartment and moved her in with him, much to her parents' chagrin. He visited a local jewelry shop near Christmas and purchased an engagement ring to propose. He was planning to propose during a pre-planned road trip. Much like his previous girlfriend, Michael's sex drive was strong and he and Darby had sex every day. Despite the regularity of having sex, Michael never felt satisfied. He still dreamt of violently raping women. The fact that his current girlfriend was fearful of another sexual assault really turned Michael on and fueled his rape fantasies. As they moved into their second year of a relationship, Darby became more assertive and focused on her career. Michael did not like this shift in her personality. He felt that she was becoming too controlling, like his mother. She was no longer the fearful and submissive girlfriend he had. During one fight, he realized that he wanted to put his penis in her mouth to make her remember the time when she was sexually assaulted. During another fight, he hit her across the face with his palm. She was shocked that the fight had escalated to physical violence. Despite the relationship being in constant turmoil, they remained in their toxic relationship. He resumed his stalking behavior and began taking walks during the evenings to get away from Darby. His method of self-soothing or masturbation was no longer effective and he needed to relieve the pressure building inside of him. When he would find the target, he would get as close to her as possible to see how long it would take her to notice him. Other times, he would let the woman figure out that he was following her, just so he could sense her fear. Eventually, it wasn't enough just to follow them. One evening, he grabbed a woman as she left the agricultural building on the Cornell campus. 
He grabbed her from behind, covered her mouth, and dragged her down to the ground. The young woman was trying to fight him off once she was on the ground. She didn't have to fight very hard. As soon as she hit the ground, Michael got spooked and ran away. The frazzled woman ran for help and provided a description of her attacker. A few weeks later, he grabbed another woman from behind as she walked and dragged her across the street from a fraternity house, and then let her go. His third attack occurred when he spotted a woman walking towards a campus restaurant. He grabbed her from behind the neck, dragged her through a fence, downhill, through woods, and walked her along a nearby lake. He then heard some people nearby, panicked, and then pushed her down a small embankment and ran off. Michael would later say of this attack that he thinks he would have raped her if he had not heard the people passing by. After his third attack, he started stalking every night. It's unclear whether Darby found this strange or if she welcomed his absence. On May 7, 1981, after a nasty fight with Darby, he needed to get some air. This would be a common excuse for Michael in the future. He would later say that when he is stressed from fighting, he looks for release by preying on women. When he was returning home after his drive, he saw a woman walking alone. He quickly pulled over parked his car, and began walking behind her. He dug in his pocket and pulled out a shoestring to use in the upcoming attack. He attacked her from behind and put the shoelace around her neck. Due to the force he used, the shoelace snapped, so he put his hand over her mouth. As he dragged her through the nearby brush, she was kicking and thrashing, trying to escape. Fed up with her insubordination, he threatened her by telling her, Scream, and I'll kill you. She opted to comply and hoped to make it out of the situation alive. Michael could tell she was resigned to what was happening. He told her to lie on her stomach and to put her hands behind her back. He tied her wrists together and brought her to her knees. He then forced her to perform oral sex. He would share later that he loved when the women he attacked were knelt before him. It made him feel dominant. It made him feel powerful. He then proceeded to rape her, leaving her and a frightened heap. He ran back to his car and sped off. The woman was able to unbind her wrists and contacted police to report her sexual assault. The next day, Michael was flooded with remorse. The feelings of remorse that would inevitably follow each attack would not prevent Michael from taking it to the next level. Zung Nuk Tu was a 25-year-old graduate student at Cornell. She migrated from Vietnam to America when she was 10 years old. Her father accepted a position as an economist at the World Bank, which allowed him to support his daughter's collegiate career. Zung loved to volunteer and was passionate about her studies. On May 12, 1981, students recalled seeing her reading a newspaper in Warren Hall. At some point during the day, she left Warren Hall to BB Lake. Michael saw her heading towards the lake and decided to follow her. He came up behind her, covered her mouth, and drug her out of sight. He made her take off her skirt and kneel at his feet to perform oral sex. He pushed her onto the ground and made her take off her underwear. He then raped her. When he was done, he told her to put her skirt back on and roll onto her stomach. He decided at this point to murder her. Michael preferred murdering women the way he was taught on the farm. He proceeded to strangle her and pushed her into BB Lake. At the time, he was not sure if she was dead or unconscious. He didn't stick around to find out. He returned home and made Darby have sex with him. Zung's disappearance is immediately noticed by her landlady, who reported her missing to police. Zung was known to keep a tight schedule and rarely faltered from it. The landlady knew something was wrong when she failed to return to her apartment that evening. Five days later, on May 17, 1981, her body was discovered in the river. Initially, it was thought that Zung had completed suicide by jumping off the Thurston Avenue Bridge. An autopsy found that she had a skull fracture, which would be consistent with her jumping from the bridge and hitting her head. Due to the amount of time her body spent in the water, any evidence collection would be difficult. At the time, her death was ruled a suicide, a finding her family strongly disputed. Michael graduated from Cornell in 1981, unscathed. 
He wasn't affected by his parents announcing their impending divorce during the end of his senior year. He was relieved that his mother essentially disowned the family and ran away to God knows where. Michael only cared about his relationship with his father. Upon his graduation, he accepted a job as a production manager at Cargill in North Carolina. When his move to North Carolina was complete, he was frustrated and alone. He started stalking women before he even unpacked his items. In August of 1981, Darby arrived in North Carolina to spend a weekend with Michael. She was still in her senior year at Cornell and was unwilling to move with Michael until she completed her education. Michael knew he was losing her. When Michael talked about his job at Cargill, Darby scoffed at him and offered that she was likely getting a big-time job, making way more money than him. He felt emasculated and couldn't wait for her to return to New Jersey. On August 25, 1981, Michael was relieved to be dropping Darby off at the airport. As he headed back home, Michael saw a woman leaving the post office. He followed her home, where he saw her leave her front porch and walk towards her backyard, pushing a baby stroller. Michael came up behind her and wrapped his belt around her neck. During the struggle, the stroller was knocked over and the baby began to cry. Michael punched the woman several times in the face, then threw her to the ground. He threatened to kill her baby if she did not cooperate with his demands. Michael then picked up the baby with one hand and dragged the woman with the belt around her neck into the field behind her home. He made her lie on her back and pull her skirt over her head. He forced her to perform oral sex on him. When he completed the act, he forced her to swallow his semen. The baby was crawling around unaware of the cruelty bestowed upon its own mother. He then ordered the woman to turn around and lie flat on her stomach. He strangled her from behind, and she stopped struggling. Michael left, but was unsure if the woman had died. She woke up two hours after the attack and ran to a neighbor with her child. The woman who Michael raped refused to go to trial, which allowed Michael to walk free. She would later be instrumental in identifying Michael through an arrest photo. Michael at this point only committed one murder. He was undeterred and continued his routine of stalking local women. A few weeks after the attack in August, Michael was sent to Illinois for management training. The training bored him and he became restless. After the seminar day was over, he went out searching for another victim. One evening, he saw a 15-year-old girl walking to buy cigarettes at a motel. While she was walking, she became suspicious because a car drove by her multiple times. When she arrived at the motel, she saw the same car with the same driver watching her. I'm going to pause the case right here so you can hear a word from our sponsor. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. As she walked back home on a well-lit path, Michael parked on the side of the road, came up behind her, grabbed her around the neck, causing her to scream. He put a knife to her throat and dragged her into a nearby wooded area, taking her deeper into the woods. He threw her onto the ground and put a handkerchief in her mouth. He put the coat that he was wearing on her backwards and then told her to lie flat on her stomach. He took his belt off, put it around her neck, 
and rolled her onto her back. He sat on her while keeping the belt tight. Michael didn't know that someone had heard her scream and called the police. Police began searching the woods, which prompted Michael to run off. The girl called out for the police, who were able to unbind her. As police drove the victim home, she saw his car on the side of the road and informed officers that it belonged to the man who attacked her. The police waited for him to come back for the car and arrested him on the spot. When he was allowed his phone call, he called his parents to bail him out. He was charged with unlawful restraint and took a plea where he was sentenced to two years of probation. He resigned from his position at Cargill shortly thereafter to return home to Brooklyn, Connecticut. He made the odd decision to live with his mother while returning to work with his father. When Darby came to visit him for Christmas in 1981, she pretended not to know about the arrest, though she would later share with authorities that Patricia had called her to share the details about the crime. She told Michael during her visit that she wanted to postpone their upcoming nuptials. The news devastated Michael and put him into a tailspin. 17-year-old Tammy Williams was a high school dropout who was considered a street kid. She worked at King's Department Store as a clerk. It was January 1982, and Michael prepares for his late-night stocking routine. On January 5, 1982, Tammy spent the night at a friend's house, then went to see her boyfriend at around 9 in the morning. She hung out with him for about an hour and then headed back towards her home. She stopped by Brooklyn Bowling Alley to meet up with two friends. She spent less than an hour visiting with them before she told them she had to work that night and needed to get ready. Around 11 a.m., Michael saw her walking along the sidewalk. He pulled his car off-road behind her. Michael, emboldened and focused, paid no attention to how obvious his stalking was. Multiple witnesses saw what he was doing, but no one intervened. He was able to grab her from behind, took her to his car, bound her, and drove her about a mile away to a deserted area. He pulled over and hid in a secluded area. He drug her deep into the woods and she thrashed, putting up a fight for her life. He made her undress, perform oral sex while on her knees, raped her, and then made her get on her stomach. He straddled her back and then strangled her. He put her lifeless body into his trunk and drove around, looking for an appropriate dump site. He found a swamp-like area of the woods and placed her in the muddiest part, covering her with grass and sticks. By noon that same day, Tammy's purse was spotted on the side of the road. The person who found the purse turned it into police. Her disappearance was reported the following day. When police searched, they found no other clues as to where Tammy went. Witnesses who saw what Michael had done in broad daylight reported it to authorities, but all leads were to a dead end. The case quickly goes cold. Michael would visit her dump site many times, later telling authorities that he didn't, quote, masturbate or anything weird like that. Once his probation ended, he accepted a position as assistant complex manager at Croton Egg Farm in Croton, Ohio. He wanted to visit Darby at Cornell, as they had not seen each other since Christmas. When he surprised her in March of 1982, he was enraged to see her with another man. Darby tried to calm Michael down by saying the gentleman was just a friend from class. Michael needed to cool down and stormed out of the apartment, intent on returning home and possibly finding a new victim. On March 1st, 1982, Michael drove through Wallkill, New York. On his drive, he saw 16-year-old Paula Pereira hitchhiking. She was a good student and voracious reader who had a difficult home life. She had left school early that day because she wasn't feeling good. She called her boyfriend and told him that she would be visiting him later that day. Michael pulled to the side of the road and offered her a ride to her next destination. Paula readily accepted and thanked Michael for helping her out. She disclosed where she would be heading, and Michael drove towards the location. At some point into the drive, he diverted from the route and pulled over into a deserted area. Paula's stomach sank when she realized what Michael was doing. He drug her out of the car, made her undress, performed oral sex, raped her, made her get on her stomach, and then strangled her to death. 
when he was sure she was dead, he got back into his car and drove home. Much like his previous attacks, Michael claims to have felt immediate remorse after the act. Michael was growing more and more stressed with his relationship with Darby. He knew that once she graduated, that she was going to leave him. He couldn't handle the continued rejection and channeled his stress into the only thing that could relieve the pressure. Michael was now living in Johnstown, Ohio. He got into his car and drove around searching for a woman to violate. On April 26, 1982, he saw a woman leaving a laundromat at around 10.30 p.m. He followed her to her home, and little did Michael know, his intended victim was an officer for the Columbus Police Department. He knocked on her door, introduced himself using his full, real name, and asked if he could borrow a flashlight. She handed him the flashlight, and when Michael returned, he asked if he could use her phone book to call a tow truck. She agreed and let him enter her home. He closed the door behind him and proceeded to grab her around the neck, throwing her to the floor. He straddled her, choking her with one hand while repeatedly punching her in the face. During the struggle, she got one arm free and yanked at his hair. He let her go, giving her the opportunity to stand up. He tackled her, and they both fell on the fireplace. She screamed, kicked, and scratched at him. Michael, realizing the struggle could likely be heard by neighbors, gave up. He ran outside, and bravely, she ran after him. But he was far too gone. A few days after the attack, police came to his office saying someone with his name had attacked an officer. Michael denied the accusation, but police then asked why someone would randomly use his name. Michael surmised that it was likely a disgruntled former employee. He provided a list of former employees that they could question. Thinking he was no longer under suspicion, Michael was surprised to see police on his front step a few days after their first encounter. His heart dropped when he saw the recovering police officer, whom he had attacked almost a week before, standing outside of his apartment. He was asked to step outside for identification. She simply looked at him and then left. He was relieved and, again, thought he got off scot-free. The next morning, he was arrested for assault on a public servant. He contacted his sister and asked her to bail him out. He quit his position at Crotonake Farms and returned to Brooklyn, Connecticut to await trial. A condition of his bond was to regularly attend therapy. Darby came down to participate in therapy with him despite the relationship nearing its end. Darby later returned to New Jersey, communicating little with Michael during their time apart. Michael was undeterred by his latest arrest and needed to relieve the pressure of Darby's latest visit. On June 15, 1982, he would find his next victim in 23-year-old Deborah Smith-Taylor. Deborah was a newlywed who was experiencing marital troubles, living with her parents to get some space from her husband, James. She left in the mid-afternoon of June 15th, telling her mom she would be running errands and driving around. She did not mention that her husband James would be joining her. Deborah and James drove around all day, drinking and talking about their marital issues. Deborah realized too late that her vehicle had run out of gas. They pulled over in Danielson, Connecticut. A state trooper picked them up and took them to a gas station, but couldn't take them back to the car because he was radioed on another call. Frustrated by the inconvenience, James and Deborah started arguing. Then they started hitchhiking in opposite directions. Michael, out for his nightly prowl, spotted Deborah and offered her a ride. She readily accepted, abandoning James and her vehicle. She thanked Michael for the ride and advised him on where to go. He instead took her to a remote cornfield in Canterbury, Connecticut. Terrified, Deborah complied with his usual demands. She removed her clothing, performed oral sex, and then she was violently raped. She begged Michael not to kill her. He told her to shut up and made her turn onto her stomach. He strangled her until she died, and he put her body in the trunk and drove to a separate location to dump her. He found the perfect location on a remote farm. He buried her in a shallow grave and covered her up with some brush. 
she was reported missing two days later. James would be number one on the suspect list. He took a polygraph and was cleared as a suspect. Michael visited the dump site quite regularly until her body was discovered. On July 26, 1983, Darby made her way to Connecticut to deliver the news Michael knew was coming. She ended their relationship for good. He struggled with feeling relieved and feeling like a failure. He was never going to be the husband a woman would want. Darby leaving him would be the least of his worries. On August 4th, 1982, Michael pled guilty to the assault on the policewoman. He would serve four out of a six-month sentence, released for good behavior, and only having to pay a $1,000 fine. Upon his release, he returned home to Brooklyn, Connecticut. On October 30th, 1982, Deborah's remains were found. Coincidentally, the area where her remains were found is very close to an area where the Ross egg farmers dumped manure. The only people who went to this location were Ross Farm employees. Police were aware of this fact and interviewed Michael and his father Dan about who could have been out to that location. Dan shared that two of his employees went there every day. When police interviewed those employees, they said they didn't see anything suspicious while they were performing their duties. The following year, in 1983, Michael needed to satisfy his urges. On May 23rd, he made his way to Moosup, Connecticut. He grabbed a woman while she was walking. Startled but prepared, she pulled out a knife and threatened him to leave her alone. Michael was unfazed by the knife or the brazenness of his new victim. He smacked her hand away and grabbed her by the throat and started strangling her. He raped her, then let her go. He ran away from the scene, rushing to his car and speeding away. He applied for a job at Prudential Insurance in Jewlett City. He was able to attain the position by lying on his application. He checked the no box when asked if he had any prior convictions. That same year, in the fall of 1983, he began a new relationship with a woman named Jenny. Their relationship moved rather quickly, and Jenny soon moved into Michael's apartment. He wanted to bring her home for Thanksgiving, but Dan denied his request, stating there wasn't enough room for her. This greatly upset Michael, who knew of only one way to express himself. Robin Don Stavinsky was a 19-year-old state discus champion whose athleticism was passed down to her by her father, Ron. She worked for a dry cleaner in Norwich, Connecticut, which was about 12 miles from where she lived with her boyfriend Dave in New London, Connecticut. She did not have a vehicle, so she relied on hitchhiking to make it to work every day. This was not abnormal for the time, but as we know now, hitchhiking is extremely dangerous. On November 23, 1983, she was hitchhiking back to her apartment in New London. Michael spotted her and parked his car. He walked up next to her and the pair started talking. He waited until she was not paying attention and caught her off guard. He then started strangling her until she passed out. He learned that if he could subdue his victims quickly, it would be easier to drag them out of sight. He pulled her deep into a nearby brush and began to rape her. He strangled her until she died. He covered her body with brush and leaves. Her parents began to worry when she didn't show up for Thanksgiving dinner. A week later, Jogger spotted her body and ran to a payphone to call police. Robin's stepmother heard that a body had been found in Norwich. She contacted the police and gave a description of Robin. She was then asked to come into the station. Michael was far from done, but was beginning to experience troubles at work. He is constantly coached over his performance and poor sales, discouraged, stressed, and upset over the feedback. He wants to go back out and kill. April Brunei and Leslie Shelley were 14-year-old best friends since elementary school. Leslie attended 8th grade at Griswold Elementary, while April was in 9th grade at Griswold High. The girls made plans on Easter Sunday to hang out after Leslie got out of church. On April 22, 1984, Leslie went to church that morning as planned and then went to hang out with April for the rest of the afternoon. The girls wanted to head to Jewett City, which was about three miles away. Leslie called her father and lied that she and April were headed to the movies and that her parents would be driving them. 
April told her mom that they were going to get pizza and that Leslie's parents were giving them a ride. Instead, the girls began walking towards Jewett City. There is no account of what the girls did while they were there. The girls each had a curfew of 8.30 p.m. They realized that they were not going to make it on time and decided to hitchhike as opposed to walking home. Michael spotted the two girls walking along Route 138. He stopped to offer the girls a ride, which they accepted. He took them past where they wanted to go. They pointed this out but were ignored. Panicking, they said they wanted to be dropped off at a gas station. April pulled a knife out from her pocket and tried to make him stop. Scoffing at her attempt, Michael reached over, grabbed the knife from her hand, and threw it on the floorboard. He drove to Beach Pond in Rhode Island and parked the car. He bound each girl's hand and foot with a piece of cloth. He put Leslie in the trunk to keep her contained. He untied April and made her walk with him to a more secluded area. He raped her, turned her on her stomach, and then strangled her with the cloth he had bound her hands with. He returned to the car and strangled Leslie. He would later tell authorities that he did not rape Leslie, only sodomized her, but he did not actually commit that act. The reason he said this will be explained later, but an autopsy conducted on Leslie showed no signs of vaginal or anal rape. When he had successfully killed both teens, he put their bodies in the trunk. He drove back to Jewett City and dumped their bodies in a culvert near where he had picked them up. Nearly a month after murdering the two teens, in May of 1984, he broke things off with Jenny. The reason he gave for the breakup was because she fought with him too much, and that's all he did with his previous girlfriend, Darby. She, he told her, reminded him of his mother. After Jenny moved out, Michael felt free to resume his stalking. On June 13, 1984, Michael spotted 17-year-old Wendy Barbiolt walking along Route 12 in Lisbon, Connecticut. It is known to be a very busy road. Wendy had left a note on the kitchen counter for her mom at about 4 o'clock p.m., saying she was going to walk to a nearby convenience store. Michael pulled his car over and walked up next to her. She felt something or someone rush up behind her, and before she could turn around to look, Michael had grabbed her from behind, covered her mouth, and dragged her into a wooded area. He followed the same M.O. as in his previous rapes and strangled her to death. There was a stone wall nearby that he dragged her body to. He removed some of the stones and covered her body with them, hoping she wouldn't be found. When Wendy did not return home, her parents contacted police and went out searching for her. Her body was found on June 15, 1984. Michael Malchik became the chief investigator over Wendy's case. He was combing through tips that were coming in from multiple witnesses. They called in saying they had seen a man in a blue Toyota get out of his car and grab Wendy by the arm. Malchik, using the make and model of the car and brief description of the attacker, came across Michael Ross's name. Michael's past convictions made him a viable suspect. On June 28, 1984, he went to Michael's apartment to talk to him about his whereabouts that day. Malchik found it strange that during that talk, Michael, quote, enticed me to ask more questions by dropping subtle hints that he was our man. Michael even admitted to being arrested for two sex offenses without being prompted. When Malchik brought him to the station, they spoke for hours on end. In a surprising and uneventful twist, Michael confessed to kidnapping, raping, and murdering Tammy, Deborah, Robin, April, and Leslie. On June 29, 1984, he offered to take the police to each of the dump sites. On July 5, 1984, he was charged with six murders. He pled guilty to the murders of Tammy Williams and Deborah Taylor, for which he received a sentence of 120 years with no possibility of parole. He did not enter a plea of guilty for the four other murders and was left awaiting trial. While awaiting trial, he met with five different psychiatrists who all diagnosed him with sexual sadism. Further tests also found that he had lesions on his brain, which could help explain his loss of control, but that cannot be confirmed as of this recording. With Michael's mental illness, the defense now had their strategy, prove that Michael killed because of his mental illness and not because he wanted to. He had no control over his actions. He was a victim to his own brain. 
An interesting aside, even though Michael killed April and Leslie in Rhode Island, the police never tried to find the actual murder scene. There was no proof besides Michael's confession that the two actually had been killed in Rhode Island. It's likely that police did not want Michael to be charged for those murders in Rhode Island because Rhode Island did not have the death penalty. Any part where Michael said he killed the girls in Rhode Island was excluded from the confessions. The murder of Leslie is the one that prosecutors really thought they could get the death penalty conviction on. He supposedly did not rape her, so his defense of having a mental illness could not have been the cause of him murdering Leslie. He murdered her just to murder her, which contradicts his statement saying he sodomized her. The trial lasted over six months. The jury took less than 90 minutes to deliberate over his guilt. They found him guilty of the murders of Robin Stavinsky, Wendy Barbial, April Brunei, and Leslie Shelley. He received six death sentences, four for the murders themselves, and two additional sentences for the kidnapping of April and Leslie. He was not prosecuted or charged in the death of his first victim, Zung Nok Tu. The New York prosecutor declined to press charges since it was a waste of resources. Michael was already serving a death sentence and, realistically, would never serve time in New York for the murder. Michael served his sentence at the Osborne Correctional Institution, where he had a difficult time being alone with his thoughts. He had no way to escape and relieve pressure in the way that he had in the past. He would attempt suicide several times because of the tremendous amount of guilt he felt. He started hormone therapy in 1989 to help suppress his violent sexual fantasies. The treatment did help, but did not completely alleviate the thoughts. It's no surprise as true crime listeners to hear that Michael had several girlfriends while imprisoned. His most serious girlfriend was Susan Powers. She was from Oklahoma and even got engaged with Michael, but they broke up in late 2003. She continued visiting Michael even after their breakup. Michael was also introduced to Catholicism. He became a devout Catholic and prayed the rosary every single day. He believed that by turning to God, he was saved and forgiven. He now looked forward to his execution so that he could be in a better place. In 1994, Michael's death sentences are overturned when it was discovered that a psych report had been excluded from previous sentencing hearings by the prosecutor. The report showed that the psychiatrist, Dr. Miller, believed that, quote, Michael's mental illness played a significant role in the murders and that he could not recommend a death sentence. A new sentencing hearing takes place in 2000. There were two options available to the judge, to either give Michael death or life without parole, totaling 480 years. It took nine days of deliberation, and on April 6, 2000, a determination had been made. Michael Bruce Ross would be resentenced to death. On May 12, 2000, he received six death sentences. In a way, he was relieved to have this final chapter closed. He stopped appealing his execution after the Connecticut Supreme Court upheld his death sentences. He said that the victim's families had suffered enough and he did not want them to endure another trial. He informed the judge that he would drop all of his appeals. His execution date was scheduled for January 26, 2005. His public defenders continued filing motions to overturn the death sentences, which Michael did not want. On January 26, 2005, he was issued a stay of execution so that his mental status could be re-examined. His execution date was rescheduled for May 13, 2005. He woke up on May 12, 2005. For the last time, after eating breakfast, reading the newspaper, and watching TV, he was moved to a cell near the death chamber. For lunch, he had a cheeseburger. He met with the chaplain to receive communion. He had visitors that consisted of his family, friends, and attorney. His last meal was what was served to the rest of the inmate population. Turkey alla king, rice, fruit, mixed vegetables, and white bread. He was led into the death chamber around 2 a.m. and is prepared for lethal injection. When asked if he would like to make a final statement, he said, No, thank you. He was pronounced dead at 2.25 a.m. Michael was the 127th person to be executed in Connecticut. 
the first person to be executed in Connecticut by lethal injection, and the first person to be executed since May of 1960, when Joseph Taborski, a gangster who had robbed and murdered his way around Connecticut, was executed. As of this recording, Michael Bruce Ross is still the last person to be executed in the state of Connecticut. The book, The Man and the Monster, by Martha Elliott, was a great read and incredibly helpful in the research for this episode. Martha began talking and visiting with Michael in 1995 and continued talking to him daily until his execution in 2005. The book gives a lot of detail about Michael's sexual sadism and the time he spent with psychiatrists. The book really helps people understand why Michael did the things he did, and I highly recommend it if you want to know more about the why behind Michael's actions. Okay, fan club members, as I conclude this episode, my one question to you is, how will you sleep tonight? Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to leave us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast player of choice. It really does help us out. You can find me on most social media platforms, Twitter at TCFCPod, Facebook.com forward slash TCFCPodcast, Instagram TCFC underscore podcast. And of course, our website is TrueCrimeFanClub.com. If you have an episode request, send us an email, TCFCPod at gmail.com. Music for the show is provided by We Talk of Dreams. Check them out on Twitter at We Talk of Dreams or WeTalkOfDreams.com. Audio engineering was provided by Chess Gray, who manages Chess Gray Music. Content warning at the top of the show is provided by Tyler Allen, host of the Minds of Madness podcast. Research provided by Haley Gray, co-host of the Murder Road Trip podcast. Content editing by Brittany Martinez. <laughs>